Sometimes a poet's voice seems to land with a satisfying thump, fully formed. Charlotte Guest's is one such voice. Her elegant, tender and surprising lyrics are tuned, in her own words, to invisible forces. Her learning, worn light, makes a suburban world strange and familiar all at once. Investigating in her debut, Soap, the lodgings at the end of girlhood, with both wit and heart-aching ambivalence, guest is one to watch. That was a quote um, from Lucy Dugan, a fellow poet and also research administrative officer at the Westerly, uh, Westerly Centre UWA. It was during the buzz and glitz of the Blue Room Theatre's creative speed dating function where I met today's author, who, in a traditional sense, is an actual published author, Charlotte Guest. These are clear-eyed poems, both tough and tender. <laughs> Guest casts dappled light across the everyday Emily Stewart. And we're just giggling because um, Charlotte has this beautiful nine-month, eight-month-year-old cat, and she's just dying across the room. So just just would like to mention that we have two guests on today on the Perthian Chronicles. Oh, thank you. Was it Janelle? Janine. 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 Thank you, Janine. (laughs) Now, a bit of biography. From 2010 to 2014, Charlotte Guest studied at the University of Western Australia, earning a Bachelor of Arts in English Language, Literature and Letters, and then an Honours in Australian Literature where her thesis investigated the life and work of South Australian artist and writer Barbara Hanaran. Charlotte is now the publishing offer at UWA Publishing. She is also a poet who is having a volume of works being published. This collection of vibrant writing will be known as Soap. And recently Charlotte was announced that some of her work will be published as a part of the 2017 Grieve Anthology a creative initiative by the Hunter Writers' Centre in New South Wales to promote Grief Awareness Month. Congratulations, Charlotte, and welcome. Thank you. To start off this um, tale, I'm trying to sound linguistically smart. (laughs) Anyway, that's going to derail this conversation. Why do you write? Is there a need or desire to? Definitely a desire, which I think has certainly evolved now into a need. I, ne- I never used to write. I know a lot of writers, when they're interviewed, say that they wrote from a very young age and especially read from a very young age. I actually didn't. I didn't become a serious reader until late teenage years and I didn't start writing until 19, probably 20 because I was very much an outdoors child and we, I grew up in Kalamunda and we had quite a big block and I'm an only child and I was, you know, I had to make my own fun and to make my own fun I would run around in the garden, I would climb trees and I would go to the bush reserve next to our parents' house and the bush reserve connected my parents' house and my, pe- my grandparents' house so if I'd ever, quote unquote, run away from home I'd run, I'd, I'd not, without a doubt, run from my parents' house through the bush to my grandparents' house, which is, you know, little, very little imagination went into that <laughs> escape. But, um, yeah, so when people ask writers, you know, 
they often say that they have ink in their veins. That's quite a common yeah. expression, that writers have ink in their veins. I, I didn't. I think I definitely do now. It's an impulse to try and capture experience and, and the texture of ordinary experiences in particular, I think are quite fascinating mm. in, in, with language, but it never used to be. So it's an, in, an impulse that I've, comes from an, in, like, an inexplicable need to write now but it's a fairly new fairly new thing a fairly new vocation I guess which has obviously come from a, a love of literature and some sort of instrumental or instru some key works that I read that I thought you know this is what writing should be about or you know being able to recast your everyday world into different frameworks different ways of seeing just by using language in, a, in an interesting way. I don't know if that answered your question yeah, at no, all. <laughs> no, because no, it reminded me of, because there's these two coming from like a theatre performing, acting, yeah, performance background. Two of my sort of icons, as it were, my heroes, is Stephen Fry, <laughs> his, his use of language and wordsmithing, mm -hmm. and this other actor, uh, Sir Peter Ustinov, who is also a, a writer. And it's very interesting um, with Sir Peter Ustinov because it's fascinating because he died in 2004 and like he kept writing late, you know, because he died, I think, age 82. But he, he kept he, writing plays and whatnots and, you know, and, but he would always write, and I found this also with John Cleese, they write uh, pen and pencils and mm. papers and longhand. Mm. I'm just curious, do you, do you type and... I take notes long uh, with pen and paper. I find there's something really nice about the tactile yeah. and tangible method of writing, but I don't tend to draft full pieces because I, I write, so poetry I can write full first drafts longhand and then edit on a computer, but I also write fiction and non-fiction. Well, short, short fiction, you know, short stories and, and articles, and I, I certainly can't write those longhand. Usually because I'm trying to, I'm trying to write at the pace of what I'm thinking, so then I can go back and edit it, or so that I can capture a train of thought. And I can't, I, I'm not very good at shorthand, so I can't write or note take in a coherent way that keeps up with the train of thought which makes it sound like I think at a lightning speed but that's not, not what I meant but I just find as a method I can do poetry longhand but anything prose I have to do on the computer first yeah that's kind of a subconscious thing that's developed I've not really noticed that until I just said it then but yeah I always carry I mean I think this is this is a bit of a cliche but I do always carry a notebook but I actually find that, and I, I was relieved to read something, I think it was in the Canberra Times, but about the Canberra-based poet Paul Hetherington, who is actually, I consider him a mentor, and he really helped me bring soap into being. But Paul Hetherington was saying that he actually drafts a lot of his poetry on his iPhone, in the notes yeah, app. Yeah, yeah. yeah so Paul, Paul is really, he, he, write, he writes all sorts of, forms of poetry but he's really passionate about prose poetry as well and there was an article about his latest collection which we published at UWA Publishing called Burnt Umber mm. and he was saying that 
he, sim he finds it quite useful just to type straight into the notes section on his mm. iPhone. And yeah, I do that as well. Mm. I do that as well. It's, it's, it doesn't, you know, it's not the romantic kind of image of scribb yeah. scribbling onto scrap pieces of paper, but I find it just keeps everything together more. <laughs> it's easier. I feel like when I'm writing anything, or whatever it may be, I like going, I like going for, and I do that too, I have to say I'm guilty, as I got my iPhone here. I do, I definitely do use, yeah, I, I go to the notes section, notes section mm. and write, and I go outside for a walk, mm. and there's this thing, I'm very lucky, I have a park outside where I live, and I just, and there's like this oval, and I just walk, you know, just do laps of the oval, and you know, write, tapping away in my little screen. That's so funny you say that, because I'm just finishing off an article now that, should be coming out in an anthology of essays next year which is about writers and and exercise but particularly walking well i mean it doesn't focus it the focus of the article is actually on the synergies between poetry and organized sport which sounds very strange but part of the article also touches on all the writers who recommend long strolls in order to basically get the blood flowing and get there, there's something, there's something in bodily movement that is very good for the for the writing mind. Mm. Um, I I think I read that Charles Darwin would always pace his property in order to think through his ideas and before putting them down on paper. And even sport sport wise, I read an article in the New Yorker a while ago about how Tolstoy was a really keen tennis player. And I think the, I think the most well-known one is um, Murakami being a really, really obsessive marathon runner. Mm. And he wrote a memoir called What I Talk About When I Talk About Running, which is taken from a Raymond Carver, which is adapted from a Raymond Carver title. But um, it's, his, it's his memoir about how his writing career and his running career developed at exactly the same time um, and how they've worked in tandem with each other. Because he didn't start writing until I think he was about 30. Because he used to own a, um, and run a jazz bar in Tokyo and before he gave it up and quit and started drafting novels. But yeah, so he's a late bloomer, so that makes yeah. me feel better. <laughs> yeah, so sorry, we've... That's been right. distracted by Janine and Janine and Oblomov, my fish. Oblomov. Yeah. That's so wonderful. What's her name from? It's from a Russian novel, which is up there by Goncharov. Goncharov. Oblomov. But it's actually I got it from um, reading about the the word Oblomov in Russian, mm. which according to this source means because um, I hadn't actually read Oblomov before I called my fish Oblomov. And it, if I had, I probably wouldn't have called him Oblomov because Oblomov, the character, is kind of a lazy, mm. unlikable dude. But the word Oblomov in Russian, that I, at least according to this source, I haven't verified it, is a conversational term which means everything, anything, something and nothing. And it's apparently what you say when you've run out of things to say. Yeah. So you would just, you know, come to the end of a sentence and you go, oh, Oblomov. Like, because it's just kind of like, that's it, we're done. Um, and that's at least, that's what I, um, that's what I read that, 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 that this word means. And even if it doesn't, I think that at least lay, that definition really suits a fish. I don't yeah. know. I don't know if it does, but his name's Oblomov anyway. <laughs> well, I find fish, because they're just constant, like, because I'm trying to remember, they don't, 
Like they have to keep swimming basically and they go half asleep, don't they? Yeah, and I feel I feel really so sorry for Oblomov because mm. he's just to give the listener a um some context, he's the only place I can put him is on my bedside table in order to plug the heater in because obviously fighting fish are tropical so the um, water has to be a certain temperature has to be quite warm Um, so in order to warm his tank I have to put him in this place because I don't we I'm I live in a very old apartment block and we don't have many um, power sockets so having the tank there is beneficial because it means I can heat his water but it also means that he just constantly has this beast terrorizing him yeah. from the other side of the glass because it's perfect position for Janine to just yeah <laughs> just investigate. I, f- I was hoping it would get old by now yeah because it's been months yeah but it's like her Netflix like it's <laughs> like she's just glued to it constantly and sits on the fish tank and just like bats it and chews it and runs at it and jumps on it all day, every day, and all through the night. I don't sleep very well anymore. <laughs> this reminds me of a typical, well, I'm a Game of Thrones fan, and I just feel like it's, you know, one of the fans trying to just tangle with the latest episode. <laughs> and the one thing I... This is, I'm not, I was about to say diversion, but I'm not sure, what do, what do you think? Because I get annoyed, because I'm on YouTube, right, as everyone does these mm. days, and I watch basically my TV on YouTube, and I'm scrolling away, scrolling away, scrolling away. And I, and I love Game of Thrones. Well, I like it. It's a good yeah. series. I've actually never seen it. No? No, there are some key TV shows that I've never seen because because I live by myself. Mm. I scare myself very quickly for anything <laughs> with... So I'm, I've kind of just restricted myself at the moment to a diet of rom-coms. Right, um, okay. <laughs> Nothing like intellectual. Because, so like, is it Stranger Things? Yeah, like I'm, I've never seen a single act because I, I, I just I know that I will fr- I'll, I'll, I'll scare myself so I haven't seen oh. Game of Thrones I haven't <laughs> seen some really key TV shows because I just can't be bothered going through yeah. the trauma yeah. <laughs> um, of like because it's quite violent isn't it Game yeah, of Thrones yeah it is and there is yeah I mean, characters and zombies and yeah, see, just not my cup of tea at the moment. At the moment. At the moment, because I did, because I think I think I'm warranted in in this because, so I've lived in this apartment for um, since November last year, and one night at about eleven, someone basically just tried to kick my door down and tried to come just to try to try to bash the door, and because it was late. I had all the lights off so you couldn't really tell that anyone was home so I decided just to pretend that there was I didn't turn the lights on I didn't go to the door yeah. or anything like that but it was a very it felt like a very long time that they were bash 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 and I thought they were going to break the glass yeah. um, it's only a, it's a, that's happened once but it was enough yeah <laughs> and so I feel like I I don't feel bad having not seen these sort of culturally significant TV shows because they're, they're, they're quite yeah. frightening if you live by yourself. Well, if you're me and you live by yourself, clearly yeah. I'm a bit sensitive. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, Stranger Things, well, Game I, of Thrones. Well, actually, being sensitive, I'm really sensitive now to bloody um, spoilers because um, it's really interesting because we live in a funny age with the internet and you've got like, these massive TV shows mm. or films and whatnot and you've got problems with hackers. And it's really interesting because 
on YouTube, I was scrolling and like, you know, episode four of Game of Thrones is coming next week. But I saw this morning all these leaked clips oh, no. of episode four. Like, ding, the dot, dot, dot happens and this happens. And I was like, oh, fuck. You know, I just, no. <laughs> What's the point of watching it now? Yeah, Damn. Yeah. And I got really angry because actually, I'm not going to say because I'm going to probably criminalise myself, so I'm going <laughs> to scratch that. I did not illegally download it. <laughs> I did not illegally. Yeah, that's actually true. I did not illegally download any TV series. That's Just for showing. the record. <laughs> okay, I'm going to change the topic. Sorry. As I was saying before in the introduction, and this is really interesting because I, I, I was Googling it about... Um, this Grieve Anthology by the Hunter Writer Centre, New South Wales. And I, I found this just a... It, it's a basically a, vo- a volume of works from uh, different poets and creative writers yeah. uh, addressing grief. So, Charlotte, in regards to all that, why should we write about grief? Well, I don't know if it's something that we, as like a... Like, there are different ways to address mm. grief, obviously, and... Everyone has their their way of handling and working through personal grief. I suppose, obviously, just for me, writing is something I turn to. So writing about it is a way of processing it or processing the experience to either make sense of loss or just to capture capture a moment in time where that person is not as far away as they will be in the future. You know, I, I don't know if it's something that I should say you know, if you experience grief, you really should write about it. I mean, there's different things you can do, obviously. I know one of the methods that counsellors often often suggest, which I think is quite, well, I found it useful, is to write letters to that person, yeah. which I know, they, they, I know that's quite a common one, is to, because it depends obviously what kind of death you're dealing with, but often... <coughs> With many deaths, there's no, there's, there isn't a sense of closure, you know. So to write letters to that person is to maybe finish a conversation with them that you wanted to or to, to say the things to them that you didn't get to say or, you know, for many other reasons. But when, you know, methods of or ways to process grief that, are, that involve writing that I know is quite a common one to suggest is the letter writing. It, it's... Reminding me of something that I hope I'm not misquoting, but I remember reading about how Freud would say, and I, I'm sure there's someone out there <laughs> who will be like, that's wrong, how Freud would suggest to his patients not to continue conversations with the dead in any way, but then himself wrote reams and reams of letters to his daughter who died. Which was a bit, of, which was obviously a contradiction and something yeah. quite curious. I, be, I believe that's right. Yeah. I, I could stand corrected, but it just when I was talking about the letter writing, it reminded me of that just little, you know, yeah. factoid about Freud. Reading about grief as well as writing about it, I find I, fi- I find really interesting as to how others have found a language for something that's obviously very difficult to understand and you know it goes back to those those questions that we have as children or that a lot of us encounter when we first encounter the concept of death and those those questions such as you know what happened to that person when they died where do they go where is their 
essence, you know, whether you whether you believe in a soul or whatever you believe in, where is the essence of that person? They never become less profound as yeah. you get older. You kind of forget, they kind of slip into the background, hopefully, you know, if you're lucky enough that they, that, that death is not a constant character in your life. But it just reminds you when you go back to that, that childhood phase where, you know, often it's a grandparent or um, a, a pet often, but those those basic questions that are both at, that are at the same time simple but yet yeah again they, they never become less profound and we can never answer them and so you you know writing or reading or talking you know it's often it they're all different forms of communication I guess it's just a way to come to terms with an event mm. yeah and and hopefully gain some sort of closure yeah. Again, I feel like I take your uh, questions well, no, and, no, no. and walk off into really the horizon in the wrong direction. No, 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 no. <laughs> no. Um, it's just, yeah, it is a funny question because, like, I totally agree with what you said. And, mm. for example, my nan, she died last year. And funny enough, she I'm really worried because she died on the 31st of October, Halloween. Oh, gosh. Yeah, so oh, <laughs> it's funny, we're sort of joking that she's going to come back, come Halloween, <laughs> there's going to be knocks on the door and weird things are going to happen. Yeah, yeah, because it's, as you know, it's the night of the day, <laughs> they come to back. I um, feel, did, did, yeah, that would be some sort of great inside joke that she had with herself. <laughs> I'm dying, Halloween, <laughs> um, But when she, you know, died, it was really weird because... I shouldn't really talk, I'm not going to go in much into it, but, you know, when she died, you know, the circumstances was quite um, a bit odd. We had a, you know, family breakup and it was just, it was just a very, very, very odd ending for a person, a very sad ending for a person mm. to, to have. But when she died, it's funny because, yeah, grieving, you know, my dad, because I was his mother, mm. you know, was absolutely, you know, distraught mm. and he was most closest to her. He had a distant relationship with his father, but he was really close with his mum. Uh, and, and I had a very, very close relationship um, with her as well, but I, I did not cry um, initially. It was really weird, like I didn't have a strong emotion. But then a couple of weeks passed and some family members were posting on Facebook, you know, these little tributes of her, you know, that's the thing mm. these days, you know, my nan passed and family and what have you. And I thought, actually, I, I want to write um, a, uh, an obituary, that's the word, an obituary mm. on Facebook. And it's funny because I wrote it and, and, I, and I tried to capture, and it was such a wonderful experience because then I started just bawling, crying, and this great emotional stone passed. Mm. I, found, I found it really, really beneficial to write in an obituary. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting what you say about you know people's digital presence after they yeah. after they pass away. Right. You know, having Facebook accounts and and or other sorts of social media accounts and their own their websites that often a lot of people you know wouldn't know the passwords to in order to yeah. you know just dis discreetly close them down. So these these personal accounts endure, which I find quite. Quite strange. I mean, it's, I suppose it's no different to the objects that that person owned enduring after their their death. But it, it, it's something 
it's got a different quality to it when it's a Facebook account. And often, you know, on the anniversary of that person's death, people will yeah. post. And so it's still kind of active in a way. It's very strange. But it reminds me of... So the writer and the artist who I did my thesis on, Barbara Hanrahan, she wrote, you know, 16 books and, and kept a really extraordinary diary. But one of the scenes, she was puzzling over the nature of how all the sort of detritus of a life persists and endures after their their passing. It's mm. like sort of like, what's that, what's that um, line... Um, the centre cannot hold um, from... Oh. oh, God. There'll be someone being like... Oh. It's a very... <laughs> the Second Coming, I think, um, like a modernist poem, and one of, it's one of the lines is... My, one of my best friends, Alexis Latif, is yeah. a poet and should be screaming at me right now. That's the <laughs> title of the poem. but um, I mean, the poet. But the line is, um, things fall apart, the centre cannot hold. Um, and I always think the idea of the person being the centre of their private universe and then the, you know, debris yeah. of their life that, you know, objects that endure, like, and, and we absorb them. Like, for example, I'm wearing all my grandmother's rings and uh, I have ornaments and, and possessions that were hers. And, like, even when you go to a second-hand clothing shop, it's really strange yeah. to think, like, um, you know, that the salvos or something. And, of course, everything's washed it's not like it's not a a hygiene thing I'm thinking of but like you know I've got some vintage pieces that I really love and you know the the shop owner will say oh that one's from um, the 20s and you look at it and you think so someone was wearing this exact garment before the second world before these this huge this huge event in history hadn't happened yet but this dress and I know it's, it sounds, maybe it sounds a bit stupid. Well, of course it was before. But it's like that proximity to history. Yeah. Like being able to hold something that has, um, that has origins before you and before, before these huge events in history. Like it's like the same kind of mind-bending experience of being in a, mu- a museum and something's persisted from ancient Greece. And like, and you just you can't wrap your mind around how ha, precisely how old that thing is. There's a really great historical novel by Geraldine Brooks called People of the Book, and it's about a a manuscript. Um, oh God, it was about ten years ago I read this book, but I believe it's a a Jewish text, and um, it's from. I'm going to say the 11th century, that could be wrong. But basically the, the, the narrative is of all the people and generations and places that this object has been passed down through. And so it's the, the character is the book and it kind of follows the, the life of an object and, you know, all these, all these people that have since passed away yet this thing endures and it yeah it's I I know it's a very again it's a very seems a very obvious concept but it continues to fascinate me and I think that's kind of the the lovely thing when you go into well obviously lovely depending on what you're looking at but the interesting thing about those kinds of museums of just yeah I, I, I keep coming back to that phrase the proximity to history or like you know a vast 
field of time that you just can't comprehend. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it. I've completely forgotten what we were talking about. <laughs> what was the question? Grief. <laughs> yeah, grief. Wow. <laughs> How did we get here? Um, no, no, but the the, the odd uh, that no, like these um the possessions, the legacy, the, the yeah, physical legacy, legacy yeah. that these people leave behind and then continues to trickle down, mm. you know, and, 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 and defy, you know, time and Yeah. Mm. Totally. Yeah. There's also just another literary reference that I've just finished um, Robert Desai's Night Letters, which is about a man who's been diagnosed with a terminal illness who goes to He's from Melbourne and he goes to Venice and he's writing all these letters home and he writes one every day for every day in April that he's, that he's there. And he writes, obviously, about the people he meets and what he's doing, but interspersed in, into his story or embedded in his story are the stories that people are telling him. And one of the stories is about an amulet that, again, has this... What, like this tale of being passed between you know being lost and then rediscovered by you know by certain sets of people and traveling to the far corners mm. of the earth and just and the actual yeah being lost and rediscovered and passed down and fought over and stolen yeah. and it's that yeah it traces the narrative again of an object so it's quite interesting be interesting I can't think they're the two that that come most readily to mind of that kind of thing but yeah when did you start writing poetry poetry six years ago okay yeah not that long really so soap the poetry collection is well i mean i say in the thing that it's what i've written between the ages of 19 and 25 but really when i went to um put the manuscript together all the stuff that you can imagine that you've written at 19 is all pretty crap um so I started writing at uni yeah. basically but I and so I gathered all this material together and looked at it as a manuscript and basically just took the first two-thirds of it and threw it out because it was it it was it was really um I don't know what the sentiment overly sentimental yeah. yeah overly sentimental I think is the phrase but yeah so I mean it's it's supposed to chart a transition period it you know that kind of cusp of womanhood but the end of girlhood um mm. that that kind of transitional period but a lot of the early that the early quote-unquote a lot of the stuff from like 19 and yeah. to 21 was quite immature, so I didn't want to include it, obviously, because I didn't want that on record. <laughs> so it's mostly recent stuff, to be honest. It, there's about 40 poems in the collection, mm. so it's, it's slim, but when I... My process of editing rapidly became just cutting poems out as yeah. opposed to trying to mould poems, you know, yeah. as, a as opposed to trying to take a poem that I wasn't happy with and, and transform it I just, um, if I wasn't happy with it in the first place, I just decided to ditch it, which meant that I was ditching and ditching and ditching until I got down to, I distilled it to about 40 poems that I was, I thought were half decent. So I thought that was better than having a bigger book that would dilute, you know, any, any good poem by having 10 average poems. So I thought it would be better to just 
only include those that I was really sold on. So, yeah, 19 is the answer to your question, but the stuff in the book is probably not till about 22 onwards, so the last three years. And why the word soap? Yeah, so um, that's really interesting. I came up with it really quickly and just stuck with it. it. So a lot of the themes in the book are about intimacy, especially the female form, so women's bodies, private worlds, so private moments. So, so there's, yeah, hang on, there's themes of, <laughs> I really should get this elevator pitch nailed. Um, there's themes of intimacy, femininity and feminism, sexuality, all those kinds of things that are of an embodied experience in the sense of, of being aware of your body in the world. And, but also because it's got feminist inflections or some of the poems are quite overtly and, and proudly feminist, soap references the skin, so soap, showers, private moments, the body, but also soap is in soapbox, is in soapbox feminism. Um, so something that's more actively, proudly, outspokenly feminist. So it's meant to have both a, both a private and a public dimension. Yeah. yeah, which is why the cover is pink. <laughs> because um, so the the press, um, recent work press in Canberra were really lovely. They have they have a series that they've put together, which obviously has some design features that are consistent across yeah. all the books, so that you can tell they're all part of a series. Which yeah. I which we have at UWA Publishing as well. We have an imprint called UAP Poetry. And design-wise, the poets have say over the colour schemes, but the actual design is consistent in order to make it appear as a series and also to inspire in people that collectors urge, you right. know, so, if, so that you can line them up and they all yeah. look beautiful on a shelf. So I, so I was really, really appreciative of recent work press allowing me to have full control over the the colour scheme and the the design apart from the text because the text was really what gave it the marker of being part of the series. So I just chose a blush pink and grey text. Pink because it it's meant to be kind of subversive in the sense that, uh, you know, pink is, pink is a bit of a controversial colour. Yeah. Um, if you're, you know, you shouldn't, ne- you don't, you don't equate feminism and femininity and that with pink. You want to really get away from yeah. that association, especially. Um, this is a bit of a, a, an aside, but it's really interesting with anything to do with newborns. That color coding still persists. You know, you'll get a blue blanket or for a boy, or a pink blanket for a girl, and it'll be that baby pink, which is the same baby pink on the cover, or you know, that baby blue, which I actually read somewhere used to be the opposite. Yes. So baby pink used to be for boys because it was a pale red, and red is a very masculine color. So blood, warfare, violence, you know, fire. It was a pale pink because obviously it's a it's a baby, but it yeah. it's it's on the it's on the you know, spectrum of, of it's on the warm colour yeah. scheme, and so it's a pale red. So that used to be for boys, and I think it used to be blue for baby blue for because of the Virgin Mary. Yes. So I don't know when that swapped, but it's really interesting that it used to be the opposite. But contemporary colour coding is obviously that 
all the you know welcome new girl to the world and yeah. new ha- you know welcome baby boy they'll all be pale blue for boys or pale pink for girls and you know gender reveal parties i always find really fascinating have you heard of those no. okay so gender reveal parties is where say the parents and i think they're quite you know if if that's what you like they're not critiquing it it's this yeah. really interesting sort of thing that people do um so the parents may go to the doctor and and get the gender of their child put into an envelope right so written down so that the, so the gender of their, the doctor will, will know the gender of their child they won't yeah he'll write it on a slip of paper or she'll write it on a slip of paper and put it in an envelope and take it to the say the baker right you take it to the baker and you this is one example of yeah. a gender reveal party but you'll take yeah the slip of paper to the to the to the baker and say um, to bake a cake that is white on the outside so it has white icing but in the middle the sponge will be either blue or pink depending on whether the doctor has told the baker that it's a girl or a boy so when they pick up the cake they they can't see because the outside has yeah. white icing on it but they'll organize a party with all their friends and family and then all together they'll cut the cake and they'll re- they'll find out what the gender of their child is so that's one version of a gender reveal <sighs> party yeah, but of course it's the same color coding. It's which which I would I would love to just if that ever was a scenario that I was in, I'd love to just have like green or yellow. Yeah. Like just for like it's a human. It's, like yeah. <laughs> congrats. It's a little person. And yeah. So um, but it's also meant to be that pink as a subversion of those colour codings of pink is for girl and blue is for boy. So, yeah, that was a convoluted answer to why no, it's called no, no, so. No. Oh, and the other reason it's that particular pink, the colour of that really lurid soap that you can find in, like, uh, things, gifts. Yeah. And all that really horrible, plasticky kind of soap. So it's meant to be a little bit unsettling as well. So, like, that gift soap. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, that's, that's why. Why did you choose... Barbara Hanrahan as the main focus of the thesis. So Barbara Hanrahan, I actually I I wanted to write about Helen Garner. I didn't know who Barbara Hanrahan was. Mm. I wanted to write about Helen Garner, but everyone's written about Helen Garner. Like it seemed like it wasn't a particularly. I was interested in writing about the suburbs, Australian suburbs, mm. in Helen Garner's fiction and non-fiction, but I felt that was quite a well-worn topic. So I decided to look through this particular feminist journal called Hecate Journal um, and try and use that as a way to discover a new female author who had been perhaps lost to history. Now, Barbara Hanrahan hasn't necessarily been lost to history. She, um, she has dedicated... She passed away in 1991 and she has a legacy that and she's quite well recognised. But she's not one that a lot of people immediately recognise, or at least I, di- I didn't know who she was mm. either. And so I discovered some of her... a review of her first book, I think it was, which is called The Scent of Eucalyptus, mm. in a Hecate journal. And it was quite a strange book. Mm. So Scent of Eucalyptus is an autobiographical novel, which a number of her... She had a number of books 
like Michael and Me in the Sun and Sea Green uh, that are classified as autobiographical novel in the sense that they're fictionalised but they're very close to her life and characters are identifiably people in her life, which I think caused her a bit of grief in some points, but, you know, she, she was known for being brutally honest first about herself and about her world. She has this really interesting uh, fascination with detail. So she has this quote about, and I'm just paraphrasing it, but about wanting to get, wanting to get small and creep with the ant in the sense that there are smaller and smaller worlds and worlds of infinite detail and intricacy within the everyday world that we move in. So there's things that we just don't see uh, or don't want to see or can't be bothered seeing. And she was really interested in that world. So she wrote some fascinating passages about her garden and the teeming world of plants and insects and and creatures that, that existed within this little tiny block in Adelaide. She lived in South Australia and she moved to London after attending art school and then returned with her partner, Joe Steele, who was a sculpt, sculptor. And he, lives, he still lives in um, Adelaide. Mm. And I went to see him as part of my research for my thesis and wrote a memoir piece about it for Griffith Review because it was a really fascinating... Um, he, he is a really fascinating character, and so was she, and just to be in their, their home where she had written, you know, a number of her books was uh, quite a pivotal ex well, experience. Yeah, so I hadn't read anything quite like her work. It's quite experimental. It's quite an amorphous style, and it's quite slippery in the sense you could, it, and dreamlike. So it's not for everyone in the sense that it's not always easy reading and it's not plot driven, but it's character driven and driven by a, um, a deep fascination with her immediate surrounds. So yeah, that's why I was kind of drawn to her because she was also a printmaker and she um, made these prints about about women and women in the art world uh, who she, she believed, you know, when they were completely overlooked for her male peers. So she would do prints of women's bodies that were often quite controversial at the time, but are really beautiful works. Mm. So, yeah. She's really, and I highly recommend everyone giving her, Barbara Hanaran, a Google, because you do, you, you do see some of these prints. It's just fascinating. Mm. Fascinating, and um, I just wanted to quickly. Uh, I've also Google Charlotte Guest's um, essay after Barbara. Barbara, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I've got I've got the printed copy, and I just want to read. I think this is Barbara Hanaran from Sea Green, uh, Fontana Books, nineteen eighty. My art is something precious, something locked behind my tongue. Just really interesting. And, and I find, like, obviously, um, I, I don't want to read any more because they're out of context and you should read the essay, but I know her language is so distinctive and very interesting. It just pops from the page. Or from my... Mm. Just read it, like, wow. It's quite musical as mm. well. She pays attention to rhythm, I think, 
and flow and pace and all those things that gives it a sing-songy kind of quality. So yeah, I, I think uh, before I, I said the word dreamlike, which I, I, for me really describes her work. It's constantly shifts and changes and is almost, it's almost like one of her prints. Um, part of my thesis was on the similarities between her visual art and her written work. Okay, we're back. Now, what happened was um, the battery died on us. Um, sorry, I'll tilt the microphone back. That's better. And Charlotte's still here um, as I'm looking. Oh, no, I don't know which batteries are good and which are bad. Oh. Well, lucky I actually bought a spare battery today. Um, I, so I don't know where we dropped off. The last 10 minutes, it was a really actually a really good last 10 minutes. So you'll um, just have to imagine it. We'll have to imagine it. I asked her, you know, the... the okay, I'll ask um, Charlotte again. God, I don't know where we are. We're really lost at this point in time. And <laughs> Anyway, but but that's, um, you know, creative writing. You, you edit a bit and you go back to it again and again. And, and you write and you rewrite. So it's, it's, on, it's on theme. On theme. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I'll ask again Charlotte... In the year 2027, when we meet again, don't know where, don't know how, maybe in Melbourne, maybe in Europe, and I've already said this, this kind of feels weird, um, what would you like to plug? Okay, so I'm currently toying with the idea of writing something that I'm terming an anti-biography mm. of my father, and I know that term anti-biography must sound really pretentious, but it's the only way I can frame it in my mind at the moment. So the idea is that my father had a really interesting life story, but instead of writing a straight memoir or biography, I'd like to use some of the themes in his personal narrative as jumping off points for essays about certain social and, and cultural and literary uh, topics. So an example might be individualism and the self in western culture and because for instance my dad was very much and is very much a loner like a, a someone who has never needed and has often shirked company and you know traveled hitchhiked around the world by himself was a grenadier guard which is a very um oh. yeah so he was a grenadier guard for the queen um oh. so he um used to guard windsor and buckingham in the 60s and so the training for becoming a grenadier guard is a very lonely I mean even though you're with a, you know you're yeah. in the barracks yeah. but it can be a very lonely and, and experience and especially if you're on duty you can't commute that you can't you have to be almost a statue yeah and unless of course something calls for you to act yeah and my father was the shortest man in his um regiment I think and he was sort of relentlessly bullied because he was so much physically smaller and he was also had an accent that was very different to the other sort of Northern England accents. And so there were certain markers that made him an outsider. And even growing up, he, you know, he never had a single friend. And so he is very much the kind of that figure of the loner in and especially that kind of very traditional ideas of masculinity and being emotionally um yeah he he kind of that particular theme that runs throughout his life story I 
would use, say, as a jumping off point to talk about the capital R romantic mm-hmm. hero and then, say, those figures as they run through pop culture and, like, you know, how they're variously represented. And they're not necessarily... They can be cultural heroes and icons, but they're not necessarily a healthy role model. And I feel I have to backtrack there. Not that my dad wasn't a healthy role model Mm. for me, but it's not, like, a figure that you... Depictions in pop culture that you should always necessarily idolise and all those kind of things. So the idea is to use various themes, and that's just an example, that run through my father's life story as jumping-off points to talk about, to, to write some social and cultural essays and then just preface each one with a a vignette from his life and I mean so one of the other things I would talk about is like memory and identity making through storytelling so the anecdotes that you tell over and over again so they almost take a life of their own and you wonder are you remembering the original memory or have you perfected the storytelling so those those kinds of questions and and points of interest as you know instead of with biography and life writing and life writing is a really interesting field but instead of sinking into the specificity of a single life to perhaps use that narrative and generalize and look outward um, and look at how it fits into various social and cultural frameworks so that's the idea and it is fledgling at the moment so it probably will need 10 years to come to fruition so maybe that's what I'll hopefully be talking about in 2027. Oh yeah I hope so that sounds fantastic and also I'm thinking now Charlotte I'm not sure if this is I know when I edit this this is going to be interesting would you mind reading a poem? I'll read a different one just in case the other one is on the recording. Um, Okay this one's called Autobiographical Fragment. The blue balloons, inflated to the size of modest goals, like regular pay, attract people as flowers attract bees. They involved in the world of invisible forces. It is a birthday party. I watch from the window opposite. Nearly women and nearly men arrive and disappear into the pumping heart of the apartment. Suddenly I am transported, back to Rachel's 18th birthday. We held a funeral for her youth. She buried a doll in a shoebox lined with eucalyptus tissues. The doll stared into middle-lit distance all the way down. After the grave was sealed, Rachel emerged from behind the shed to effervescent music. She was draped in a white sheet, a smudge of light growing slowly nearer, like death from the perspective of the dying. Her feet arched and fell. Her toes transformed into gentle animals nosing the ground. We reached for her through affected tears and stifled giggles. She was our messiah, older than the rest of us, schooled in the secrets of Eros and Thanatos. She passed cryptic notes in chemistry. Everyone who loves should spend time with the periodic table. Who are we in the places we occupy? The door to the apartment opposite opens. A young woman steps out and folds over the balcony like laundry. She slides her weight more fully in my direction, as if to say... I sense here the limits of my life. The air makes a sound as I suck it through my teeth. Charlotte, thank you. Thank you.